As a pastor, I often hear stories, uh, sometimes kind of crazy stories. I would imagine my friend Adam back there can, would, would agree with me that that's the case. Um, sometimes stories of amazing things that God has done, it's always fun to hear their sto- those kinds of stories. Sometimes stories about uh, just some of the crazy things that people have done and some of the uh, situations they find themselves in. And uh, sometimes that's funny, sometimes that's challenging, uh, sometimes that's kind of messy. Uh, but, one of the, but one of the other areas in which we hear stories, that I have heard stories as a pastor, are stories about really difficult experiences that some people have had in the church. Um, I know that you've heard stories like this as well. Some of you have firsthand experience with some of these stories that get told about difficult things in the church. I'm thinking about things like uh, being part of a church that splits, about being in a church where a pastor has failed morally, uh, either through an inappropriate relationship or maybe through the misuse of funds, stories about churches in which leaders have become overbearing and controlling. Uh, even to the point of potentially becoming spiritually abusive. Stories in which sometimes those who are the victims end up getting blamed, while those who are the perpetrators are given the benefit of the doubt, even when patterns and evidence indicate otherwise. Stories about being part of a congregation that gets more excited and focused on politics and culture wars than on the gospel. You know, we hear about this. We see this kind of thing happen. We experience this, and it causes uncertainty and chaos in these churches. It hurts the church. And of course, for those outside the church, the church loses credibility. You know, as I listen to some of the people who experience some of these things, some of them just decide that they're done. You know, if this kind of thing is going on in the church, then what the church is about must not actually be real. Others are hurt by what happens, but they don't walk away from their faith, but they do walk away from the church. They call themselves Christian, but they don't meaningfully participate in the church anymore. Others stick with the church, but they do so out of duty much more than delight. They keep showing up, but frankly, they're pretty discouraged and defeated by the uncertainty and the chaos that they see and experience around them when they're at the church. I know people like this, and I know that you do as well. In fact, maybe some of what I've described already kind of fits where you're at or what you've been thinking or experiencing. Maybe you've been so hurt and discouraged in the past that you've thought about walking away or wanted to walk away. Quite frankly, I've been there too. But see, walking away or staying and 
just kind of going through the motions. Those are not our only two options, nor are they our best options. In fact, the Bible shows us a better way. This morning, we are starting a new series from the New Testament book of 2 Peter. And this book, which is really a letter, was written to churches who are struggling, struggling because of uncertainty and chaos being caused in their churches by leaders who were behaving badly and who were teaching badly. And the goal of this letter was to help to restore order and confidence in these churches. And so this morning, as we begin this new series, we are going to learn who wrote this letter, although you can probably guess. We're also going to learn who it was written to. And then we're going to discover where to begin in restoring order and confidence in our churches, whether we're talking about 2,000 years ago or in our churches today. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't have a, a, a Bible app, or if you don't have a Bible with you, or a Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, grab one of those red Bibles in front of you, and we're on page 1893 in the Red Bible, but it's 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, our, two, our New Testament, uh, which we're in now, is written, is made up of 27 different books. 21 of these books are actually letters, letters written by a leader in the early church to another person to a particular church, or to an entire group of churches, which is the case of the letter we're looking at today. Here is how 2 Peter begins. Look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So this letter was written by Simon Peter, and he uses two words to describe himself. He describes himself as a servant and as an apostle. This is the same Simon Peter that we read about in the Gospels. He's a former fisherman who responded to Jesus' call to follow him. He was one of three disciples who formed Jesus' inner circle. He was among the 12 disciples who were appointed to be apostles. Apostleship is a special role and title that was given to those whom Jesus entrusted with establishing and leading the early church after Jesus rose from the dead and then returned to heaven. But despite this position of significant authority that was given to Simon Peter, he also knows that he is a servant of Christ and of the church. Well, Peter addresses the recipients of this letter as those who through the righteousness of God and of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Now that tells us about something about his, those recipients. It, it tells us something about them spiritually. It tells us that they were Christians, but very little else. But fortunately, we actually have some more information from the first letter that Peter wrote. 
And because of the reference that Peter makes later on in this letter to that first letter, most people assume, I assume, that both of these letters were written to the same churches, uh, to the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, to the churches in those areas. Notice that Peter describes the readers of this letter as having received a faith as precious as ours. That's because there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And so whether you are an apostle like Peter or you might have been a Roman slave who had only just recently put their faith in Christ, their faith and what God had done for them and given to them was equally precious. And that is also true for us today. Whether you're a longtime elder in a church or whether you're a brand new Christian who's come from what we might think of as a pretty rough background, you have received a faith as precious as any of ours. God loves and values you as much as he does everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Well, Peter concludes this greeting here by wishing his readers, which now includes us, an abundance of grace and peace through our knowledge of God, the Father, and Jesus, our Lord. And so with this greeting now complete, Peter's ready to get down to business. I told you earlier that Peter's goal in writing this letter was to help restore order and confidence in the church communities that he's writing to. Order and confidence that was lacking because of leaders who had been behaving and teaching badly. But before Peter addresses these problems directly, he tells these Christians that he's writing to that the way forward begins with them. There are large and systemic issues that are going to need to be addressed, and he will do that. But the lasting solution actually begins with each of them. And so for this reason... Peter starts by encouraging each of them, every one of them, to continue growing in godliness. The chaos and uncertainty in their churches may have seemed confusing and overwhelming, but the solution, the path towards greater church health and vitality, begins with Christians who commit themselves to health and growth, to greater godliness. And godliness is the thing that they should pursue because God has actually given them everything that they already need in order to actually do this. Let's look at the text, verse 3. Here's what Peter says to them. His, meaning God, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So according to Peter, according to what Peter is telling these Christians located in Asia Minor, God has already given them everything that they need in order to live godly lives. 
Once they have put their faith in Jesus, God's divine power provides them with all of the spiritual power that they need in order to live in ways that truly please him. It doesn't mean that now they're living perfect lives or even that it's possible for them to now live perfect lives. But what it does mean is that they now have the ability to live lives that are moving in a more and more godly direction. What Peter is saying to these Christians in the early church is also true for us today. If you're somebody who's made the definitive decision to follow Christ, then God's divine power is at work in you and is supplying you with sufficient spiritual power to be able to live a godly life. Now, Peter's going to explain how to do that in a minute. But before that, I want you to notice something else. Notice that this text tells us that God uses his divine power to give us what we need for godliness so that we can participate in the divine nature. It's kind of an interesting phrase. Well, what Peter is describing here is not a way for us to become God, as some have actually tried to argue. That's not what Peter is saying here. What Peter is saying here is, or what Peter is describing here is how we can become more like God. Like God in the sense of reflecting his goodness and character in our own lives. You got to remember, the Bible tells us that all human beings are made in the image of God. We are designed to be the visible representatives of our great and amazing invisible God. But sin and evil have corrupted all of us, driving us away from God. However, when we hear the gospel and we respond to it by pledging our love and loyalty to Jesus, then God's divine power begins working in us so that we have all that we need in order to live lives that become more and more in line with our original design, which is to live in godly ways. But just because God's divine power is at work in us, once we do respond in faith to Jesus, that then doesn't mean that we still don't have an active and necessary part to play in growing in godliness. In fact, Peter addresses this next. Look what he says in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. So in order for these Christians to make the most of God's divine power that is at work within them, Peter gives these, Christ, these Christians seven traits that they are to add to their faith. Seven qualities to build into their lives so that they can better participate in the divine nature. Seven characteristics to pursue in order to better and to more accurately reflect the God whose image they bear. And these are qualities that we today as followers of Jesus should also be intentionally adding to our faith as well. 
Let's look at them really quickly. The first one that we're to add to our faith is goodness. Goodness, the idea here is one of moral excellence. It's doing what is right and best in all circumstances. To this, we're to add knowledge. This would be wisdom that helps us know from God's perspective what is good and what is not. You know, we are surrounded by lots of people, lots of institutions that have all sorts of different ideas about what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. And what Peter is advocating for here is is growing in knowledge through our study of Scripture about what God says to be right and wrong. Well, to this knowledge, we're to add self-control. We're to be learning to control our passions and desires rather than being controlled by our passions and desires. To this, we're to add perseverance. This is steadfastness. Speaking about the the ability to endure through tough times because we trust that in the future things are going to be better. To perseverance, we're to add godliness. The idea here being a reverence for God as well as an appropriate respect for other people. The opposite of this would be an attitude that takes God lightly and treats other people flippantly or disrespectfully. And then there's mutual affection. This would be love for others, especially for other Christians. Another one of the apostles, the apostle John, writes this in one of his letters. We love because he, meaning God, first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, and this is meaning spiritual brothers and sisters, not just blood brothers and sisters. Um, For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That's mutual affection. And to mutual affection we are to add love. And the love, the, the Greek word that's used for love here is one that describes a love that is greater and broader than just mutual affection. It's a love for others, whether they're a Christian or not. It's a love based in its origin, which is God, and it's not dependent on its object, which would be other people. In other words, this is love that we give to others because God is love, and not just because they're lovable, because in many circumstances they might not be. And so what we have here is quite a list. A list that first century Christians were to pursue. And a list that 21st 21st century Christians are still to pursue. Because this, my friends, is who we are designed to be. But it's also necessary because in order for our churches to be healthy, They need to be filled with the kind of Christians who are growing in exactly this kind of godliness that's described here. Now, Peter wants to make it very clear to these first century Christians that this list that he's given them is not just a list of suggestions. 
a list of optional ways in which they could improve themselves if they felt like it. Peter wants them to know that actually, no, the stakes are much higher than this. See, according to Peter, pursuing godliness is the only way to live a life that ultimately doesn't get wasted. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 8. Peter goes on and says to them, For if you possess these qualities, the, the seven you know, that you add to your faith, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So Peter is telling them that if they want to live lives that are effective and productive, then they have to be work, then they then they must put in the work uh, to they have to be at work adding these seven qualities to their faith that they have in Christ. You know, I think most of the time when we think about being an effective and productive person, we think of that as being dependent on things like our intelligence or our opportunities that we're given or the skills maybe that we possess. But Peter here is saying that effectiveness and productivity actually depends on increasing in faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love. Now, obviously, what Peter has in mind here is not economic productivity or political effectiveness, social productivity or institutional effectiveness. But that doesn't mean that what Peter's vision here is for something smaller. Peter's vision here is actually for something much greater than any of those things, something greater than economics, something that's greater than politics, something that's greater than social advancement, something that's greater than the furthering of our institutions. See, Peter's concern is with productivity and effectiveness related to our true purpose, to our ultimate design, to the primary reasons for our existence, which is knowing God and making him known, which is glorifying God and finding our greatest joy in him. See, this is why we were created. And this is exactly what we are designed to do. And it's only by intentionally and earnestly adding to our faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love that we can, in fact, live lives that are effective and productive in any lasting, eternal sense. Having made this point, Peter then wraps things up by telling his readers to confirm their calling and election. Let me read what he says, and then I'll explain what he means. Look at verse 10. He writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
So based on everything that Peter has said up to this point, namely his instruction to live godly lives by actively adding to their faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love, they are to confirm that God has in fact called and chosen them. The New Testament teaches us that God elects or chooses who will be his people. Yes, we also see in the New Testament that we have to respond in faith to the gospel. But what is also true is that even before the world was created, God chose those who would respond in faith to him. This is actually very clear from the New Testament. But what the Bible doesn't tell us for sure is whether God's choosing of us is based on his sovereign choice, because he's God and he gets to choose who he wants to choose, or whether it might be based on his foreknowledge of who will one day choose him. Or maybe it's even a combination of those two things. And that actually is a mystery that's not going to be cleared up for us until we stand before him in his kingdom and somebody asks him. It's a lot of theology, but let me give you one assurance in the midst of it, just because sometimes people get nervous when they hear this talked about. If you love Jesus and you want to follow him, then you can be 100% confident that you are among those that God has chosen to be one of his specially chosen people. But what Peter is trying to say here is that we have a way to confirm that we are among those that God has specially chosen to be his people. And we can find that confirmation by adding to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection and love. Now this kind of effort that's being talked about here, this doesn't save us nor does it even lead to our salvation. But what but when we make this effort that effort then becomes the evidence or the confirmation that we have been saved and chosen and called by God. The effort doesn't save us. The effort proves that we have already been saved. That's what Peter's saying here. Peter also explains that pursuing godliness has other benefits and blessings as well. One is that it keeps us from stumbling. Not that we're going to be sinless, but we should be sinning less. As, and we'll also become less and less likely to be tangled up in patterns of sin and brokenness the more we pursue godliness. And that's because the more we pursue God and godliness, the less appealing sin becomes to us. And Peter identifies a second benefit of pursuing godliness, and that is that we will then receive a rich welcome when we enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we see him in the new heaven and new earth. I started off this message by describing 
ways in which our churches can sometimes fail and even harm us. And I suggested that there would be solutions and answers to this. And I know that to this point I haven't given you any. But I am going to promise you that they are coming. Peter in this letter has some very important and helpful instructions on how to help us restore order and confidence in our churches back then as well as today. But see, what Peter has given to us and what I have now tried to give to you is a place for us to start, a place to begin. And it begins with us. It begins with us realizing, truly realizing, that God, through his divine power, has given us everything that we need in order to live truly godly lives. God has already done his part in this. And what we need to do is to commit now to doing our part by adding to our faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. So my question for you this morning is, where are you in this? If you've never pledged love and loyalty to Jesus, then I'm going to tell you not to worry about godliness. Godliness matters, yes. Clearly, this text makes it clear that godliness matters. But godliness is something to pursue only after you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. And that's actually something that you can do this morning. And I try to make it as simple as A, B, C. Acknowledge, believe, and commit. Acknowledge that you need to be rescued from your sin and brokenness. Believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. And then commit to following him as your true rescuer, king. Acknowledge, believe, commit. If you haven't done that, and you do do that, then you will be reconciled with God. Your sins will be forgiven. And God's divine power will begin working in you to give you everything that you need in order to live a godly life. That is what the scriptures promise us. That is what the scriptures tell us will and does happen. For the rest of you that I know makes up the vast majority of you here this morning... You've already pledged love and loyalty to Jesus. And so as you look at this list, this list of seven, these seven qualities that we are called to add to our faith, as you look at that list of seven, which would you say is most lacking in your life? Which of these characteristics is most likely to hinder your ability to live a godly life? Which of these qualities 
are keeping you from living as effectively and as productivity as God has, God has designed you to do. See, as your pastor, I, I hope that you'll look at this text. Maybe you'll look at it again during this week, and you'll take it very seriously. Ask God to show you which of these traits in particular he wants you to add to your faith. Now, I mean, obviously he wants you to add all seven of these to your faith, but which of these traits in particular would he want you to, to focus on especially? Because we've got to start somewhere, Right? And then as you ask him and you get some direction from him on that, then keep your eyes and your ears and your heart open to instances and opportunities where God is then going to give you opportunity to practice these traits. Because see, it's through the pursuit and the practice of these things that we then can have our election confirmed. And we're able to live effective and productive lives. As we wait together for the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to come. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and peace that we find in knowing you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us the divine power that we need in order to live the kind of godly lives that you have, in fact, called us to live. Jesus, thank you for becoming one of us in order to show us how to live a life of faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And thank you for dying all the times and circumstances in which we haven't lived these ways. We pledge our love and loyalty to you as the one who will welcome us into your eternal kingdom one day. Holy Spirit, continue your good work in us. Help us to remember and to believe that your divine power has truly given us all that we need in order to live godly lives. Guard us from pursuing other things that will ultimately lead us to live ineffective and unproductive lives. And work with us to confirm our calling and election so that we will not stumble, but instead walk in faith and righteousness as we seek to follow Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.